0: Well, we're going to carry on with our study through the book of Genesis. We're going to try and see if we can make it all the way to the end of the the first chapter this morning. I just want to just turn to a verse in Proverbs to start with. though. Proverbs 8, verses 8 to 9 just tells us something quite interesting about God and the things we have written down in God's word. It just says, All the words of my mouth, this is God speaking, are in righteousness. There is nothing froward or perverse in them. They're all plain to him. That understand it and write to them that find knowledge now there 's a couple of interesting words here in, in the Hebrew that word word, it 's the the Hebrew word papal. It, it just means twisted there 's nothing twisted that, in, in what God says he 's not trying to deceive us or or confuse us in any way. And that word plain, it's very simple. It just means straightforward and upright. God has told us what he wants to tell us. He hasn't hidden these things in myth or allegory or so on, as many people would tell us. Some people look at the opening chapters of Genesis and say, well, it's all just Hebrew myth or poetry or whatever else. Well, this verse does away with that because God doesn't speak that way. God says what he means and means what he says so we can take him at his word because he tells us that we can now this morning we're going to go on and look at a number of things just picking up from where we left off so let's just jump straight in and we'll kind of go through these topics as it were as we look at these verses picking up from verse 6 which is where we got to and we read it and God said this is God's words again let there be a firmament I want you to see if you notice something here. A firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. And the evening and the morning were the second day. So, day one is a day unlike any other day. It's not just one of many days, it is the very first ever day. And that's the way the Hebrew actually portrays it in the the wording that's used. The second day, we now have a comparison, because we now have a day already, the first day, so the second day has now been compared to that first day. This is now the second of the days that God was creating. What do you think the theme is for this uh, day Well, I think you can see quite clearly. It's the firmament. Now, what is the firmament? It's actually a word that occurs nine times in this chapter alone. And we're going to see that God, and as you see in verse 8, there, God calls the firmament heaven, which doesn't really help us, because it doesn't really explain what firmament is. So we need to do a little bit of digging here. The word in the Hebrew is a word rakia, uh, from the root rakia. It just simply means to stretch, to spread out, to beat, to tread out, or it has this implication of a solid expanse. That's what the actual word means. In the Greek, in the Greek translation of this, the word "therioma" is firmness, again the same idea, and the Latin firmamentum, which is obviously where we get our word in the English, uh, is just again has the idea of a three-dimensional solidity. That's what firmament means, which doesn't help us yet either, because it kind of creates a kind of confused picture for us. What we are told is that this firmament is used to divide the waters that are above, whichever, whatever they are, from the waters that are below, whatever they are. Well, we go on. Because when we get to day four, we find that God says there, let there be lights in the firmament of heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons. We're going to come to this verse in a short while. And we're told that these lights are going to be in the firmament of heaven. And then you notice that God set them in the firmament of heaven. So we have a little bit of a clue, just simply by a bit of deduction here, because we know where the sun and the moon and the stars are. They are in what we would call space. So we can to link that to some degree in helping us understand these things. When we actually look at the, the nine times this occurs, We've got the first one, we just looked at a moment ago, let there be a firmament. And then we have three times the firmament that is used. Now they all seem to be speaking of the same thing in those verses. And then we've got that verse that says that the firmament is called heaven, which again seems to be linked very much with that first block. Then we've got the ones we just looked at, which is on the the day when God is creating the heavens. And the three times there that firmament is used, it specifically says the firmament of heaven. So just being precise in the way that these things are, are portrayed to us. And then the final time this occurs in verse 20, it speaks about the birds flying above the earth, and it says in the open firmament of heaven. This is that verse. I want to just unpack this because it helps us a little bit more. Because, again, it says that God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that has life and the fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. Now, the word that's in and the word that's open are interesting. If you just look at those. Because the fowl we know clearly are to fly above the earth. No problem with that. So, they're going to fly it says the firmament of heaven is where the sun and the moon and the stars are placed so clearly it's not referring to outer space we know that birds don't fly in outer space the word al is the hebrew there um which is translated in it means against and the word that's translated open is a, a "panim," is the hebrew word and it kind of has its idea of in the face of so we could translate that the, the, the fowler to fly against the face of the firmament now that maybe helps us a little bit more to understand that They're not to fly in the firmament, but in the face of the firmament or in front of the firmament. So that maybe helps us a little. Can we go on? What do we know? Well, firmament must include space. Just simply a bit of deduction there because obviously the sun, the moon, the stars are all in the firmament. So there's got to be this side or this understanding as part of it. But the firmament is also, as we're looking in these opening verses in day two, is also separating the waters above from the waters beneath. And birds are going to fly in the face of it. So it implies that something that is above our atmosphere, and so on. And it's interesting because this is the firmament from this deduction has got to refer to at least two distinct solid expanses, if we can put it that way. One of them being space. Now, if you're thinking that space isn't a solid expanse, we're going to go on and just talk about it briefly. And the other one, of course, is this firmament that is separating the waters. Well, let's just ask a few questions. What do we know about space? Well, to all intents and purposes, we all are fairly comfortable with the idea that space is a vacuum. The word in the scientific community is often used is the ether. But it has this idea of emptiness. Now, going all the way back to people like Aristotle and so on, 300 and so BC, their view was that space was just absolutely empty, it was a vacuum. And we get all the way through to kind of the Middle Ages and a little bit afterwards, You come to the time of René Descartes, uh, he challenged this and said that actually he thinks the ether was, uh, which comes with this word plenum in the Greek, that was meaning full, And he said, therefore, what we've got here is something that is actually made up of very, very dense, small particles. It's invisible, but he's saying it's more solid than matter. And this is where the scientific community started to lean. And then Blaise Pascal, who interestingly also was another Bible-believing Christian, then, for his reasons, then convinced the scientific community that space was actually empty after all. But then we come, a little bit later in history, to the time of James Clerk Maxwell another Bible-believing Christian, and this time he actually demonstrated that the ether, that space, actually did possess various physical properties, which meant it has to have some sort of physical element to it. Because he highlighted that it could be stretched and compressed and so on and did this in a number of ways, proved it by a number of things. Now, it's not settled to this day, and there's still debate over these things, but it is just curious to note what the Bible has said right from the beginning, because the Bible has called space, where heaven, the, the sun, the moon, the stars, the space, the firmament, that word as we've seen already, has this idea of something that is solid. Now, the Bible also says that the heavens have been stretched out, now we read those kind of things and we may think they're just kind of a metaphor, um, just a, an allegorical expression. And yet we see it time and time again. And we've already said that God's words are not something there to deceive us or confuse us. They're pure, they're simple, they're for us to understand. In Job chapter 9 verses eight to nine, it speaks of God which alone spreads out the heavens and treads upon the waves of the sea and goes on. If we look at Job 26 verse 7, it says, He stretches out the north over empty, uh, over the empty place and hangs the earth upon nothing. If we look at Psalm 104, it says, Who covers thyself with light as with a garment, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. In Isaiah 40 verse 22. It says, it is he that sits upon the circle, literally the globe of the earth. This was before we had the knowledge that the earth was a globe. Isaiah had stated it quite clearly. The Bible way ahead of science on this one. And the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers. And it says, that stretches out the heavens as a curtain. And we're all familiar with opening the curtains in the morning. You know, and it implies that something is physical. God has stretch them out and spreads them out as a tent to dwell in. And then Isaiah 45, verse 12, says, I've made the earth and created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens. It seems a little more than just poetry here. God is telling us what he did. And he says, and all their host have I commanded. Uh, Just one more in Isaiah 51, verses 12 and 13. He says, "I even I am he that comforteth you. Who art thou that thou should be afraid of man that thou should die and the son of man which shall be made as grass and forgettest that the Lord thy maker has stretched forth the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. Now it links this with the work of creation that when God was laying the foundations of the earth, he stretched out the heavens. Now there's actually a number of times in scripture that these references to stretching the heavens occur. But there's more than that in the Bible, because the Bible does clearly indicate that space is not just a vacuum as we would tend to think of it. It speaks of space being, or or the heavens, being able to be torn. Now that must mean they have some sort of physical property for that to happen. The idea of being worn out like a garment. Well, nothing can't be worn out, because it's nothing. Nothing. It speaks of heavens being shaken, Hebrews, Haggai, and Isaiah all making reference to that. 2 Peter speaks of the heavens being burnt up, split apart like a scroll in Revelation, rolled up like a mantle, or a scroll in Hebrews and Isaiah. And that's interesting in itself, because if the heavens can be rolled up, there must be some dimension in which space must be thin, so it can be rolled. Space also, according to the Bible, can be bent, and that then gives us this idea that it has to have a direction in which it can be bent toward So it's very interesting when you look at these things in the light of what the Bible says. And this implies that there must be additional spatial dimensions. We're not going to go off down that road this morning. But what I want to highlight is that the Bible is far more than people appreciate, generally speaking. And it's interesting because the ancient Jewish scribes actually believed that in the text of the Torah, that's the first five books of Moses, first five books of the Bible, that God had actually concealed the blueprint for the universe. And the interesting thing is, the more science discovers, the more it confirms what the Bible has said all along. And I'm talking about real science. I'm not talking about this science, things like evolution and so on. But true science, the more we understand, the more quantum physics reveals, the more actually we get comfortable with these statements that the Bible makes. Again, God's words are not intended to deceive. God has told us what he did. And gradually we start understanding these things. Just as a an aside by the way, just to help you uh kind of think about this, when you think about light and this is one of the arguments that's been proposed through the years, you know, light if light is particles, as some have suggested, and people have won, one chap won a Nobel Prize for stating and proving that light was particles, if you imagine like bullets from a gun, they could fire seemingly through empty space, no problem. But then other people have won Nobel Prizes for proving that light is a wave. Now, if you think of light as a wave, it has to have a medium through which to travel. You think of a a wave on an ocean, you drop a stone in, you see uh, the ripple effect, but it's got a a medium, it's got the water through which to travel. So if light is travelling through space, it must have some medium, there must be some solidity. And these are some of the arguments that have been put forward. But again, all just goes to really support what the Bible has said, and the more science discovers, the more comfortable we become with these things. Let's talk about heaven briefly, because God says that this firmament is to be called heaven. And again, this concludes the second day. Well, in Scripture, the word that's used for heaven is this word, shamayim is the way it's translated. It means to be lofty or above. Now, we've got a number of ways in the Bible that heaven is used, and we're quite comfortable with this. We speak of heaven as being our atmosphere. There's a number of references that seem to indicate that in the Bible. Outer space, of course, we have that understanding. And there's, again, references that would indicate that. And then, of course, God's home, or what Paul refers to as the third heaven. So heaven is used in a number of different ways uh, in the Bible. Just to kind of clarify that. What do we conclude from this? Well, there there has to be, from the way this is given to us, two firmaments described in Genesis chapter 1. One is the expanse of heaven that's created on day four, where the sun, the moon, and the stars live. And the other is something that we're told divides the waters above from the waters below. And that's what we're looking at on day two. And we're told that the birds fly against or in the face of the firmament. Okay? Which, from where our perspective, when we look up, whichever of these firmaments you're considering, the birds indeed do fly in, in the face of uh, the firmament. Okay, now how do we understand this dividing of the waters? Well, this leads us on to something which has been discussed and debated for, for many years uh, and there are people on different sides of this argument and there's various theories put forward but the one that I feel is the most biblical Whether we like it or not, it's kind of irrelevant, but this seems to be what the Bible says, that we've got the waters surrounding the earth. So God makes the earth, and the earth is covered in water. So there are the waters beneath, that's fairly simple. We've got our atmosphere, no problem with that. But then, this seems to imply that we have this firmament around the atmosphere, and then outside of that, that there is another layer of water, a water canopy, if you like. Now, there are a number of interesting scientists, to um, this. One of them is the fact that when we get to the time of the flood, it seems that this water canopy came crashing down. And it actually provided part of the water that then went on to flood the earth. Now, you'll find non-Christian scientists that will look at this and they will laugh at this theory. And yet there's a lot of really, really good, compelling evidence for this. Let's just talk about some of those things. What effect would such a canopy have had? Well, it would create a greenhouse environment on Earth, and it would really ensure that the Earth had this regulated temperature all over the Earth. Is there any evidence for that? Well, actually, yes, surprisingly, a huge amount of evidence for that. It would also produce an increase in atmospheric pressure. There would be more oxygen, more CO2, and so on. Now, that has a really interesting effect on life on Earth but it would also act as a shield to protect the Earth from solar radiation, a little bit like the ozone layer does today, but in a far more effective way. Now, some of the things that validate this from a scientific perspective is that we know the Earth once had a uniform temperature, and there's lots of evidence for this. One of the things is we've got coal seams that have been found at the South Pole. That means there was once vegetation. There was things growing there, which means it couldn't have been the climate that it currently is. There's frozen leaves at both poles that have been found. And not just the odd leaf we're talking about. We're talking about, you know, lots and lots. Mammoths have been found with undigested tropical vegetation still in their stomachs. We have this idea, don't we, because we see it in all the textbooks. And we see it on BBC and Attenborough is always the one that's doing this for us. You know, we see mammoths in these really cold environments, trudging through the snow. Mammoths seemingly were creatures that would have lived in very warm environments. And we can deduce that because of the, the type of food that we know they'd have eaten. So they were probably just as surprised when things got chilly as you know anyone else. There's lots of interesting asides we can go on to that. Do you know, do you know what temperature it would have to be to freeze a mammoth? By the way, at the speed that it would be required to keep that undigested food in its stomach, about 400 degrees below. And what what is there in history that could cause that? Well, we'll talk about that in in sessions further to come because there's some very interesting science that would support this. But one of the interesting things we do have, we do know, is because they found, there's various articles, I know the University of London UCL did a study some years ago, and this is just one article from Time magazine. they found insects that have entrapped in amber, which is tree sap, when they've got them out and extracted them, they found that the oxygen content in their blood was double that which it is today. And this has led to the conclusion, you can just about see that there's the, 50% more oxygen. And it, the implication is that the earth previously, at some point, was very different than it is now. That at once that at one time, everything was saturated in oxygen. What effect would that have? Well, a, a number of different things. One of the suggestions that, that supports this idea is that, Actually, the lack of oxygen after something cataclysmically changed, when this oxygen level reduced, that itself would have been responsible for largely killing off the dinosaurs. This is actually a secular theory, but it it is exactly what the Bible seems to indicate. Because one of the things we know from this is that things like an Apatosaurus, sometimes referred to as a Brontosaurus, has got a very, very small nasal cavity. It's about the same size as a horse. To breathe in the amount of oxygen that creature would have needed to survive, it would have set its nose on fire every time it took a breath for the friction. It would have really struggled. However, if the oxygen content was greater, there would have been a breeze. we would have been no problem at all. And maybe that's what, what killed the dinosaurs off, I think, probably after the flood when everything changed on the earth. Now, we go on. Time magazine said Earth's uh, atmosphere contained about 50% more oxygen than it does today. This is a secular report. This is not what the Bible or what Christians have propagated. And as I said, UCL did the study, and this is their conclusion some years ago as well. Now, under double atmospheric pressure, plasma becomes oxygen saturated in our blood. And that has a number of effects that are really good for us. There was a baby, known as baby Jessica. uh, She'd been trapped in a well for a long period of time and they got her out, they thought they were going to have to amputate parts of her body because the oxygen just hadn't been flowing. They put her in one of these hyperbaric chambers and she recovered full use of every limb and all the fingers and everything else because they pumped the oxygen level up and things. Um, and she's kind of alive and well. That was some years ago. But even today we find that this is used. It's being used in a number of countries to treat a number of different things. Uh, dive victims are used, uh, or they, they treat them with hyperbaric chamber and so on. In West Germany, apparently stroke patients are treated for a three-week hyperbaric oxygen course and it's actually paid for by insurance companies because they get normally a much better rate of recovery. Even in this country over 6,000 multiple sclerosis patients are being treated uh, with hyperbaric oxygen where they basically put them in a tube and they pump it up to a greater oxygen pressure than we have just in the atmosphere. In France very rewarding results apparently have been found using this treatment for arthritis and various other details this will all be in the slides you can look at this if you want to go uh, even used for plastic and cosmetic patients uh, recovery in japan there's over 200 of these chambers that are being used for various situations and treatments of medical conditions even for deafness and blindness and in sweden uh, for uh, diabetic gangrene uh, and also berger's disease in india it's being used to treat leprosy. And even in this country, this is a, a quote from a sporting bulletin, um, that several English football teams are now employing hyperbaric chambers when their players get injured because they cost so much, uh, and they reckon they get a third quicker recovery time. They can't afford to have them off work when they're paid the kind of money they're paid, and so they put them in these, these hyperbaric chambers... And there's actually one down in Plymouth that, as far as I know, there may be more now, but last time I checked there was about 17 of these centres in the UK. So, we know, from a scientific perspective, that if we had increased oxygen, it would be really good for us. But it's not just in the rate of healing, but also in terms of growth as well. Because this is interesting. We've got fossilised moss three feet deep. Uh, asparagus 40 feet high that's been found. There's 50-foot horsetail reeds that have been found fossilised. Much bigger than we have today. Ferns that are over 50 feet tall. There's fossil cattails about 60 feet long that have been found in sedimentary rock. That's just to give you some idea of the scale that we're talking about. Much bigger than today. What caused them to grow bigger in the past? Well, a Japanese gentleman, Dr. Mori decided he was going to grow a cherry tomato plant, and he used, again, double atmospheric pressure to see what would happen. One grew to the height of 16 foot tall, and it produced 907 tomatoes. Uh, You can see they're the size of those cherry tomatoes. I'm not particularly a tomato fan, but uh, if you are a tomato fan, that looks a really good thing. Fossilized dragonfly with a three-foot wingspan has been found. Many of these things. Cockroaches over 18 inches uh, in length have been found in the fossil uh, record. I wouldn't want to see one of those. Uh, A fossil centipede, eight and a half foot long. Can you imagine that? That's really, really long. Grasshoppers over two feet long have been found. A donkey was excavated in Texas that was nine foot high at the shoulder. Much bigger than we have today. Fossil buffalo horns have also been found with a 12 foot span. Uh, staggering compared to today. Uh, And again, fossils of beavers over eight foot long have been found, and so on. I mean, that would uh, build some dam, I think you'll agree. We've got all sorts of other things that have been found. Uh, There's a jaw there of a seven to eight foot beaver that man's holding. Um, there's a, a one inch shark tooth that would have come from a 12 to 15 foot shark well, that's kind of what we have today um, but that's kind of uh, what's been dug up there suggesting an 80 foot long shark that would have probably existed again sometime before the flood there's the fossil remains of a turtle in Connecticut, in America and so on uh, other creatures and birdies and all sorts of things now one other interesting thing is when we look at lizards Because lizards, reptiles and so on grow throughout their life. They never stop growing. You put a lizard in an environment where there's much better oxygen, a much better climate, and it can keep growing and growing and growing, what would it look like? Well, to you and I, if we saw that and we blew it up and made it big, well, any child would tell you it's a dinosaur. What does dinosaur mean? Terrible lizard. That's what the name means. Dinosaur was a word that was invented in 1840-something or other. You know, we just look at any lizard and we'd have no trouble identifying these as dinosaurs. And the Bible does speak clearly of what we would refer to today as dinosaurs in the book of Job. There's a number. You know, it's purely just the size and the length of time they were growing for. Maybe it's not just such a a hard thing to believe after all. And then we've got the whole radiation effect. If this water canopy is surrounding the earth, it would protect the earth. It would mean people could live longer. We're not going to suffer from the kind of problems and conditions we have today. You know, radiation. You know how it is. The the, the you, you've probably been for X-rays, and you ask them, "Is this safe?" And they say, "Yes, it's perfectly safe." But we're just going to hide behind this screen, uh, you know. And then they do this X-ray of you, and so on. And basically, all these particles bombard you, and you get this kind of negative image. And you know, the old you know, joke goes that you know, why is it the radiographers have such a negative outlook on life? But uh, you know, radiation is not good for us. But if there was this water canopy there, it would explain again why we had such long ages. So I just leave that with you as a thought. Certainly it's what the Bible indicates, and it's by no means anything that we can dismiss from a scientific perspective. There's good arguments. There's some really great books that have been written. Um, Henry Morris Institute of Creation Research and many others have written really good articles uh, showing the science behind this. Um, now, of course, we don't see it today, But then this is exactly what the Bible indicates, that at the time of the flood, this water canopy came crashing down. Let's go on and look as we move on. Verse 9 says, And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place, and let the dry land appear. So the first time on earth we're seeing land, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called his seas, and God saw that it was good. Now you notice a couple of things. Firstly, at the end of day two, there was something missing. Notice what it was? It wasn't good. God didn't declare day two good. Every other day of creation is declared good, but day two isn't. Why? Well, one of the ideas is put forward is because God was putting this water canopy in place, knowing that it was going to be used later in judging the earth. And maybe that's why God didn't declare it good, possibly. But this day is declared good, we see that. But the interesting thing here is that we see all the waters gathered into one place and the dry land in another place. What that means is we have one land mass. There are no islands at this point. It's very interesting Pamphlet by Peter uh, Wildis. It's uh, again one of the CSM, creation science movement, research pieces that was done, suggesting that, I mean, this is not just a, a biblical idea. There's lots of, the, the world talks about Pangaea, the idea that all the continents were once connected. Now, from a biblical point of view, there's a strong argument that was the case. You know, people say, do you think the continents were once connected? And guess what? They still are. They're just water in the middle in places. Certain bits have sunken down, other bits have risen up. They're still all connected. But actually, if you pull all the land mass together as we have it, it seems to create a rather beautiful, almost flower-like picture. And guess what sits right in the middle? Jerusalem. Is that just coincidence? I think that's very fascinating. Just another aside to this. In the book of Revelation, it says, verse 18 of chapter 16, that there were voices, thunders, lightnings, there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were on the earth, so mighty an earthquake is so great. So this is as God's bringing judgment right at the end. And the great city was divided into three parts and the the cities of the nations fell and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And this is the interesting part. And every island fled away and the mountains were not found. Now why is that interesting? Well, what have you got if all the islands flee away? You're back to one landmass again. What does it tell us in the book of Acts? Acts 3.21 speaks about the time of restitution of all things. It seems that God is going to put the earth back as it was at the beginning, as we go into the millennial kingdom. Very interesting. Let's just move on, because I want to talk about this third day that we're now in. Because we've seen already, it was said that it was good, but at the end there, verse verse 10, uh, it says, Uh, God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters called his seas and God saw that it was good. But then he goes on and God said "Let the earth bring forth grass and the herb yielding seed and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind. Notice this by the way. We've got after his kind whose seed was in itself upon the earth and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good, and the evening and the morning were the third day. You see, this is really interesting because God keeps telling us that everything produces after its kind. Well, isn't that what we find? Isn't that a scientific statement? Isn't it one that any of us can go and test and test and, and prove to be true? You can go to any tree, you can plant the seed thereof, and what you will get is whatever it was. You'll never get anything other than it was. It's the same with any creature. Any creature will only produce after its kind. The Bible makes this statement. This is one of the simplest and clearest rebuttals to the theory of evolution. Because Darwin says, at some point, something has to produce something other than its kind. Now, stupidly, it has to be done by mutation, which is a loss of information, when in actual fact you need to add information to produce anything different. But it doesn't work. You know, the whole of the, the packaged seed industry, basis is reputation. That when they produce a packet of seeds, they'll put a picture on the front of it, be it a sunflower or whatever else. And you know, there's never a warning at the bottom of that packet saying warning may produce a frog. They know for sure that what is going to come from those seeds is going to be exactly what that seed came from originally. You know, and and even when you think of a can of beans, you've got a label on the front that tells you what it is. And when you open the tin, you're never surprised to find something that was, well, in this day and age, you might find some horse meat or something. But theoretically, what you should find is just a beans. It hasn't become something other than what was put in there, is my point. And it can't, even though it's bombarded by energy through um, uh, microwaves and, and radiation and so on. It's got energy, it's got matter, but it can't produce something other than it is. Again, evolution just doesn't work scientifically. So, but notice the point at the end here. That God, for the second time, on the third day, says that it was good. So, on the, the second day, there is no good mentioned, but on the third day, twice, God says it was good. Now, this is very interesting. We go to the New Testament, and we get to a situation that occurred, in a town up in Galilee called Cana, or Cana, however you like to pronounce that. And the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And people tend to read on. What a lot of people don't come back and ask the question is, uh, what's this third day business? The third day from what? We're not given a reference point. It's not the third day after something. It's just, and the third day. And John writes it as if we should understand what he's talking about. Well, we're Gentiles and we're ignorant of a lot of these things, but the Jews would have known. the third day. What was special about it? It was the third day of the week. And this was the day that Jews chose to get married. Why get married on a Tuesday? Because it was considered a day of double blessing. Because God pronounces the third day blessed twice. It it was good twice. And so it became the day typically that Jews would get married. When some years ago, back in 2007, I think it was, had the opportunity to go to Israel. We were there on a Tuesday, we were driving through, and we went past the Jewish synagogue and out came the bride and the groom. Getting married on a Tuesday. And I just smiled, because it still carries on today. So the Jews get married on the third day. And it shouldn't be a a surprise in that sense. I mean, uh, Hosea 6 also speaks of the third day as being a day of blessing for Israel. In the context that's given, if you want to look that one up, Hosea 6 verses 1 and 2, just an interesting scripture. But of course for us, the third day, not necessarily the Tuesday, but the third day is a day of blessing because it was the third day that our Savior rose from the dead. Just an interesting aside there. So, let's go on. So we go on and start to talk about day four. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of heaven. Now these are light bearers. We've seen already that God is the light himself. And God caused the light to shine out of darkness. God had, as we said the other week, that God had let the light illuminate. But now these, he, he creates these objects to bear the light. God said, let there be lights in the firmament of heaven to divide the day from the night. And let them be for signs of the season's for days and for years let there be for lights in the firmament of heaven to give light upon the earth and it was so and god made two great lights the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night he made the stars also i love that last line he made the stars also oh by the way yeah we did the stars if you've ever looked at the stars and the complexity i mean they're not actually complex in that sense but just the, the vastness of space It's breathtaking. And psalmists and and others through scripture often muse and look at the heavens and just are in awe of what God has done, his work of creation. Now it's interesting, we've got that word there, seasons. In the Hebrew, it's the word hamoyedim. It means the appointed times. So he set these lights in the heavens to be there for signs and for the appointed. Appointed for what? Now, just an aside before we move on. Because in Leviticus, we get the same idea that these feasts of the Lord are told, these were the times that were appointed, therefore the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim in their seasons. It's the same word again. And we'll come back to the feast in a minute. But interestingly, we've talked a little bit before about these equidistant letter sequences, where under the surface of the text, if you take one letter and you count forward X number of letters, take the next letter, count forward the same interval, and so on, you can make words. Now, that happens by random chance. But in the book of Genesis, there's an equidistant letter sequence of this word, this hamoedim. And it occurs at a 70-letter sequence. Guess where it sits under the text? Right under this verse. Of all the places it could, maybe, occur, it should occur far more frequently, but it doesn't. It only occurs once, and it occurs here. And the interesting thing is that it occurs at a letter sequence of 70. Now why that's interesting, you'll see in just a moment. Let's go back and talk about the feasts, because Israel have a number of feasts that they're given, Leviticus 23 and other passages talk about the feast, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, as we know it, the Feast of Weeks, and then the Feast of Trumpets, Atonement and Tabernacles and so on. So those are the ones we're familiar with, but there are more than just those, because Israel has, guess what, 70 of these appointed times. Interesting that that letter sequence occurs at that numerical spacing. We've got 52 weekly Sabbaths, the seven days for Passover, a day for the Feast of Pentecost, another for the Feast of Trumpets, for the Feast of Atonement, seven days for the Feast of Tabernacles, and another day for the eighth day of assembly, uh, all of which makes 70 days. And these are the appointed times. Now again, the Lord said that the sun and the moon and the stars were going to be used to... Pinpoint the seasons and the feasts, effectively, the appointed times. In Psalm 104 it says, He appointed the moon for seasons and the sun knows his going downs." Again, that word is used there. Israel's calendar was set by the new moon. It still is to this day. Uh, And it's interesting because they have 12 by 30 day months in Israel's year. Okay, or they have 360 days in the year. I'm not going to get into this in detail. I'm going to leave this in the notes if you want to dig into it, but all ancient calendars were based upon a 360-day year, which is an interesting sign, because the Bible also seems to indicate that God still uses this measure, particularly in regard to prophetic scriptures. God uses a 360-day year, and there is a suggestion, I'll just throw this out there, that when God takes everything back to the way it was at the beginning, we will actually revert to a 360-day year. Now, what would have to happen? Well, some cataclysmic event, maybe like that earthquake that was recorded in Revelation, that is going to literally rock the world. And Revelation speaks very clearly of a seven-year period being divided into 360-day years. Just interesting. Interesting. All uh, ancient calendars, just as a, an aside, changed in 701 BC. And one of the questions that's not normally asked is why. But uh, the days of the week as we have them were named after the heavens. It's incredible that God creates this stuff. and man worships the creation, the creature rather than the creator, as Paul highlights in Romans. All of those days of the week end up. You know, God never names the days of the week. This is something that, that we did. And uh, a lot of these things got corrupted in Babylon and so on. We just ask you a quick question though. When we think of the things that God has done, you think of creation. The heavens, Psalm uh, 19 tells us, declare the glory of God. And creation really is a wonderful thing as we look around the world, we look in space, we even look at the complexity of the human body and so on. And a number of scriptures tell us how incredible God worked. But actually there's not that many because Genesis chapter 1 and 2, some Psalms, Job 38, 39. What about redemption? Because I would argue that that was God's greatest achievement because actually all 66 books focus on that theme. Another way of measuring this question is, what did it cost God? Well, God did the work of creation in just six days. That's all it cost him. And the only reason he took that long was because he wanted to give us a pattern and a model to live by. Redemption cost God his own son. I mean, that really is just quite staggering when you think that all of this, all of creation, God did, no problem. But it took the death of his own son to purchase and to forgive us, to pay for our sin, to make a way for us to be brought back into the relationship that he intended for us right from the start. You see, God loves each one of you so much. As John 3.16 tells us, That he gave his only begotten son to whosoever. That's incredible. You know, it's not based upon your ability, your social standing, your skill set. It's not based upon anything you have or you can do. It's just whosoever. Whosoever would put their trust in Jesus, believe in him as their Lord and Savior, believe that he is the creator, but also that he is the one that has paid for our sin. And then we're promised eternal life. You know, when you just consider what God has created in six days, and then think that in John 14, Jesus said that he was going to prepare a place. He's been doing that for 1900 years. It's it going to be like, how wonderful is eternity with God really going to be? It will be just overwhelming. You know, sometimes... When I'm doing the, the stories at night with the girls, and uh, particularly with Marla, because she's a bit older, we have some really interesting conversations. And we often talk about eternity, and we talk about what it's going to be like, and we talk about people that we know, that we've loved, that have gone on ahead of us. People like my gran, who was a big influence, my brother-in-law Graham, and Joy's dad and uh, Marla's nana, Joy's uh, nana, or Marla's great nana. You know, these people that we know that have loved the Lord that have gone on ahead. But we said, you know, just as as Paul said, we shouldn't sorrow as others that have no hope. Great hope we've got. The death for us is not the end. And it's all because of God's incredible plan that began back in the book of Genesis. Reached a, a climax on that wooden cross in Judea some 2,000 years ago. But the eternity that awaits those that have put their trust in jesus is incredible and that's what we've got to look forward to we're going to leave it there because i've realized i'm only halfway through my slides and i don't think it's fair to you <laughs> to make you wait uh and sit in these chairs for another no actually I, i'm lying there's I'm only about a quarter of the way through um so <laughs> we'll pick up from there next week let's just bow our hearts father we just thank you lord you are a great god lord your creation is just overwhelming but Lord, even more so is the work of salvation that you undertook to come into your own creation, to be born as a baby, to live, to die, to pay for our sin. And Lord, we didn't deserve it. We could never have earned it. Oh, we just thank you. We thank you that you are such an incredible savior as well as such an incredible God. And Lord, help us to respond to you, Lord, never to turn away from that call that you have placed upon our lives may we be open and honest with you and just admit that we are sinners and we need you lord we sang earlier oh we need you lord every moment every minute of every day we need you and lord as christians we need you continually to be there to sustain us and to shower your grace and your mercy upon us and lord to fill us with your spirit that we may live lives that are set apart for you Lord, your word speaks not just of salvation being a work of grace, but of sanctification. Oh, Lord, we want to be set apart. Lord, why would we want to be part of this fallen world system when we have the opportunity of being part of what you are doing, which will last for eternity? So, Lord, let us be set apart. Sanctify us, Lord, we pray, by the work of your spirit in our lives. Father, just bless our time of fellowship now and be with us through this week. Keep us close to you and keep our eyes upon Jesus. We ask in his precious name. Amen. May God richly bless you through this coming week.